Good morning, City Light. Yeah, my name's Doug, like my wife said, and I get to follow Jesus with all of you guys. Now, I want to start this morning a little different. I want to start with a history lesson, but I promise it will be interesting because it's about rednecks from the backwoods of Kentucky, okay? About 150 years ago, when our nation was caught up in a bloody civil war, there's a smaller war going on, but it was just as deadly. It was between two families, the Hatfields and the McCoys. They lived along the border between Kentucky and West Virginia, and for decades, they had gotten along just fine. But in the 1860s, things blew up between them. And no one's really for sure what started it all, but there were some shouting matches and raids on each other's stuff. And pretty soon, it escalated into full-on hatred and redneck warfare. Like a Hatfield would just straight up kill a McCoy. And then a McCoy would go capture a Hatfield, keep him prisoner for a little while, and then kill him. And over the course of 30 years, in this redneck warfare, um, houses were burned, animals were stolen, politicians were involved, and a total of 12 Hatfields and McCoys were murdered. It was redneck warfare. They hated each other. But in the midst of their war, some of their children fell in love with each other and got married. Could you imagine what those dating years were like for them, right? Like the girl might take her boyfriend down to the creek to go catch some toads, only to come back to mom and dad out on the front porch with their shotguns, ready to shoot one or the both of them. Or the boy might take his girlfriend on a hog hunt, because that's what you do when you get serious in Kentucky. You go on hog hunts. And so they might go on a hog hunt, only to come home to his name etched in the tree with some threats beside it. And for as long as they were at war, the Hatfields didn't hang out with the McCoys. They wouldn't work together. They wouldn't eat together. And they certainly weren't supposed to date each other. Now, this next part might sound a little sacrilegious, but it's true. The Bible has a little bit of redneck in it, okay? Like, seriously, there's these heroes of the faith. The hero of the faith, he gets old, and he just starts getting drunk. That's what he does. Or there's another guy who's supposed to be an example for us, but he goes and he calls his wife his sister and then pawns her off to a king. Okay, there's some sketchy stuff in this Bible that we all love to read. And one of the sketchy things is this long-standing, passed-down-through-generations feud between two different groups of people. On one side, you have Jews. And Jews are the chosen ones. They're the clean ones. They have this law from God and all this history with God. And over on the other side is, well, everybody else. The unchosen ones, the unclean ones, those who didn't have the law, and all of these non-Jews were called Gentiles. And Jews would never want to be around Gentiles. They wouldn't work with Gentiles or eat with Gentiles, and they certainly weren't supposed to date Gentiles. There was some prejudice going on there. And I think if we were all honest, we have a little bit of prejudice in us. A little or maybe a lot of personal pride. Like there's certain people that we would never want to hang out with. We would never go eat with. We would never want to be caught dead with. 
because they're too poor or they're too rich. They act this way or they act that way. They mow their yard too late at night or they drive that kind of truck or they educate their kids the wrong way. And well, we don't really mix with that type. Just like the Hatfields and McCoys, like Jews and Gentiles, I think we all have a little bit of arrogance in our hearts that pushes us away from certain kinds of people and sets ourselves up on a pedestal. And this morning, what we're going to see in the book of Galatians is the gospel has something to speak into that. In fact, the gospel wants to set us free from that. The gospel wants to rescue us from our pride. But the way it's going to rescue us from our pride just might surprise us. So grab your Bibles, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, what my wife just read, and let's catch what God has to say to us this morning. It reads like this, but when Cephas, now Cephas is just another name for Peter. In the early church, there were like two mega leaders, two mega characters. You got Paul, who's the guy who wrote this letter, and then you got Peter. So Paul's saying, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Like, are you feeling the drama of what's going on here? Paul and Peter are in the same room. Paul steps up to him and says, hey, bro, we got to talk. Like, we need to discuss some stuff, man to man, mano a mano. And you're there and you're kind of going, oh, boy, I hope this doesn't turn into a Hatfields and McCoy situation. Hope this isn't Conor McGregor showing up to the UFC weigh-in right now, you know? And then it goes on. Paul says this in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, that's kind of like, James was from Jerusalem, kind of the headquarters. Before they came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Now remember, that's a big deal because Peter was Jewish, and Jewish people were supposed to avoid the Gentiles, not eat with the Gentiles. Hatfields don't get quality time with McCoys, and Jewish people don't just go chill with Gentiles. And yet here we find our boy Peter grabbing some Qdoba with his Gentile buddies. What happened? Well, what happened is he got some gospel freedom. He got set free from these rules and regulations and these rituals that God himself had prescribed and written for a certain time period in the Old Testament. And Peter got liberated from these man-made rules and regulations that religious leaders had made up ever since then. It'd be like telling a vegetarian that it's okay to eat meat and then taking them to Texas Roadhouse. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? Peter got some gospel freedom, so he went to get lunch with his Gentile friends. And everything seemed to, be, seemed to be going well until the backside of verse 12. But when they came, these religious leaders, when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter backtracks. He pulls away from these Gentiles because he's scared of these religious leaders who are showing up and he um, loses his gospel freedom. Not only that, but he pulls others along with him. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, one of the nicest guys in the world, was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
So Peter gets a taste of gospel freedom, but then when these religious leaders shows up, he gets scared, and so he backtracks. He pulls away and leads others with him. And when you really think about it, when you dig into it, this is racism. Peter thinks that the Jewish people are better, cleaner, more acceptable to God because of their Jewishness. Peter thinks that the Jewish people are more loved by God because of the good things that they've done. And it's hypocrisy. Because Peter knew better than to do this. In the book of Acts chapter 10, God himself gave a vision to Peter communicating to him, go hang out with these Gentiles and share the gospel with them. They are no further away from me because of their bad works. I want a relationship with them as well. And so Peter is going back to his old religious ways. He's backtracking and losing his gospel freedom. Now Paul diagnoses the problem this way in verse 14. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So Peter was being racist and Paul called it a gospel problem. Peter was being a hypocrite and Paul called it a gospel problem. Peter didn't just have a behavior problem, he had a gospel problem. Think about this. Peter was doing a bad thing, and Paul chose to confront that with the gospel. Peter was doing something wrong, and Paul wanted to right that wrong with the gospel. Whenever Peter was in the wrong, Paul didn't just say, hey, get things right. Whenever Peter was doing something bad, Paul didn't say, hey, start doing something good. Instead, Paul comes in with the gospel because Peter didn't just have a behavior problem. He had a gospel problem. Now, I don't know about you, but like when something's wrong in my life, I usually just treat it like a behavior problem. Right, Just stop doing this bad thing and find something good to do and do that good thing instead. Like if I'm arguing with my wife or really defensive towards my wife, then I think, oh, I shouldn't do that. Instead, I should listen to her and be patient with her. Stop the wrong, start doing right. Stop the bad, start doing good. But that's not what Paul says. That's not where Paul goes. He first goes to the gospel. Because Peter didn't just have a behavior problem, he had a gospel problem. You see, this is incredible. The gospel isn't just a written and recorded message confined to the pages of this book, but the gospel is also alive and active and has the power to change us. When we believe the gospel, it produces a new way of living in us and through us. It changes us from the inside out. Yes, Peter was in the wrong. He was doing wrong. But Paul didn't just give him a good behavior band-aid to slap over his bad behavior problem. Instead, he said, no, your gospel problem needs a gospel solution. I think the way I put it in your notes is this, gospel problems need gospel solutions. So what is that solution, right? I've been saying the word gospel a lot. What is the gospel? What is this solution? Verses 15 and 16 gives it to us. Paul writes it this way. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul's saying here that he and Peter, yes, they are Jews. They're by birth. They're not those dirty, nasty Gentile sinners. And everything in Peter and Paul's old way of thinking would then jump in and say, well, therefore you're better than those Gentiles. Therefore you are gooder than those Gentiles. Everything in their old way of thinking would say they are more acceptable to God because of their good works and their good lineage. That way of thinking right there, here's your theology lesson for the day. That way of thinking is justification by works. Justification by works. Now, I don't even know how many syllables are in that word, justification, but there's a lot. Don't let the word scare you. Justification simply refers to our desire to be good, our need to be right. Anyone who's been married for longer than five minutes knows just how badly we want to be right. (laughs) Not just logically right, but we want to be morally right. We want to be a good person person. But anyone who's been alive for longer than five minutes knows we're not good. We are wrong. We've got some sin and selfishness stuck down inside of us. We've got some things that we're not proud of, so we know we're wrong, but we really want to be right. We want other people to see us as right. We need God to see us as right. We have a craving inside of us to be seen as good, worthy, acceptable, right, justified. And when Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles, he was buying into justification by works. He was believing that it was his works that made him right before God. Like if he did good Jewish things, good Jewish works, then God would see him as good. But if he was a bad Jew, and the bad Jews were the ones who ate with those dirty, nasty Gentiles, then God might see him as bad. Peter was buying into justification by works. And we do the same thing, don't we? Like, it's so easy that we can start to believe that it is our good works that make us right before God. We do good deeds. We attend church. We stay out of trouble. We listen to K-Love, right? We do nice things for strangers, and on and on the list can go, and we build a case for our value to the world and our worth to God based on the good things that we do. Our works make us right, and inevitably what happens, this justification by works leads to comparison. We compare all of our good stuff and all of our good works, and we find out how much better we are than them. And church folks are the worst at this. Can we just like be honest, City Lion, and say, yep, been there, done that. Okay, I'll lead the way in confession and honesty, okay? You may not want to listen to the rest of the sermon after this, but I got to be honest. There are actually times when I think that I'm a better person than other people in our city because I go to church. This is the part you won't like. There are times when I actually think that I'm a better person than some of you 
because I'm in a city group. There are times when I think I'm a better person than other people in my city group because I help lead our city group. Isn't that just yucky? It's like disgusting. No one wants to be around that. I'm trying to stack up my good works and then compare those to my perceived lack of works in your life and get value and identity to justify my existence and justify me based on my good works and how they are better than yours. Ah, it's justification by works. And for Peter, it led to a sense of racial superiority. It can do the same for any of us. And for all of us, I think it always leads to either pride or despair. It can lead to pride because we figure out how to play the good works game and do more good works than the next guy, right? We give more, volunteer more, serve more, be nicer, do better. And we get pretty proud of all our good works stacking up a little higher than the next guys. And we're pretty confident that therefore God must approve of us. Pride. But it can also lead to despair if we can't quite play the good works game as good as the next guy, if we disappoint people, if we fail, if we fall down and we disappoint other people around us, and then we grow pretty confident that God himself must be disappointed in us as well, and he would rather just be done with us. It's justification by works. And whether it is pride or despair, we end up losing our gospel freedom. It takes away our joy in Jesus. It steals our delight in his grace. It robs us of the freedom that we have in him. Just like Peter, we end up trading in our freedom for some shackles of shame and religion. Have you ever felt that? Like, have you ever been there when you're starting out with a longing for Jesus, but pretty soon you're looking at your good works and you're hoping your good works might measure up just good enough to make God happy? Will he be happy? I'm not for sure if he's going to be happy, but if I keep working more, keep working harder, maybe he'll get happy. Oh, I'll compare myself to this person. At least I'm doing more works than them. And it all leads to a sense of pride or despair and our freedom is gone. City Light, hear this. Justification by works is not the gospel. Praise the Lord. Good news. It is not the gospel here. That is not God's plan for your life. That is not what God wants for you. So what is the gospel? Let's go back to verse 16 and let them spell it out for us. Paul will tell us. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says it over and over again. We aren't justified by our works. We are justified only by our faith in Jesus. Our sense of rightness and goodness doesn't come from stacking up our good works and seeing if they can be higher than the next guys. No, instead the gospel invites us to forget our works and put our attention on Jesus and all of his good works, that he's better than all of us, especially better than me. Justification by works says, my good works make me right, but justification by faith. Justification by faith says that God declares me 
just based only on my faith in Jesus. Not my efforts to impress Jesus. Not my attempts to get approved by God. Not me being better than you. But God declares me just, right, clean, holy, pure, good, based only on my faith in Jesus. All of our good works put together is not enough to impress God. Your stack might be higher than mine, but it's not high enough. My stack might be higher than yours, but it's not good enough. The gospel says that I'm declared good by God based on nothing that I've done and everything that Jesus has done. Think about this, City Light. My good works, all my good works ever in my life don't contribute one little itty-bitty bit to me being approved by God. Like if you took all the times that I helped an old lady, I don't remember ever really doing that. But if I had done that, There's some other things I can remember. All the times I didn't cuss in junior high. All the times that I was nice to my friends. All the times that I was patient with my kids. All the times that I was kind to a stranger or gave money to the poor or led a discussion in city group or showed up to church. If you stacked all those together, they don't contribute one little bit to me being approved by God. Not at all. Do you see how crazy this gospel is? It's scandalous. All of my good works don't contribute at all. I've never done anything to make me acceptable to God, ever. So, if all of my good works don't contribute at all to me being acceptable to God, well then, how do I please Him? How do I get accepted by God? There's only one way. Faith in Jesus that's it. Nothing else. Faith in Jesus. Now, I think sometimes we get this whole faith thing a little confused. We might see faith as a box that we check on the census or what we put into our Facebook profile. My faith is Christian. My faith is Buddhist. My faith is um, agnostic. My faith is none. But faith isn't a box to check. Faith is where you look. Faith is what or who you put your trust in. So faith in Jesus means that we look to him and we put our trust in his goodness and that he is good for us in our place. We don't rely on ourselves. We don't look to our good works or our bad works. We don't trust in me, myself, and I. Instead, we look to trust in and rely on Jesus and Jesus alone. The way we've been saying it the last few weeks is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is absolutely scandalous. But if it is true, if it really is true that we are not justified by our works at all, and we are only justified based only on our faith in Jesus, then it changes everything. You might think of it this way. The gospel is as simple as Jesus plus nothing, but it is as powerful as Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
Jesus plus nothing changes everything in your life and my life. Peter was changed from being a racist to being humble by this gospel because he couldn't stack up his works high enough and then compare those to their lack of works. He was realizing, no, all I've got is Jesus. All they've got is Jesus. So Peter's removed from the seat of judgment and placed into the seat of humility. Jesus plus nothing equals everything meant that Peter changed his life. Now, what might it mean for you and I, right? We're a long way removed from that time period. What does it mean for you and I? Here's what I think it might mean. We've all got things in our lives that we want changed. Maybe a sin that we are stuck in, some sort of wickedness that we know is in our heart and it's coming out in our lives. Maybe we have bought into a sense of racial superiority. Maybe we have a pride or um, unforgiveness or bitterness that's eating us alive, but we just can't let go of it. Maybe some hurts or habits or hangups that we wish we didn't have, or maybe we had this gospel freedom and now we've traded it in for shackles of shame. We've all got things in our lives. I don't think the question is whether or not we've got problems. The question is, what will we do with them? Galatians tells us that the deeper problem is we're not believing the gospel. Therefore, the deeper solution is to believe the gospel, not just put a good behavior band-aid over our bad behavior problem, but instead to see, remember, and believe the gospel. Now, what does that actually look like in real life, Doug? (laughs) Like, where are you going with this? If this wonderful gospel were to get pulled out of the realm of theory and theology and put into the realm of Monday morning, what might it sound like? Try this on for size. The next time your bad behavior problem pops up, pause for a little bit and think. So many times when we slip up or mess up, when we sin, our immediate and default question is, what do I do now? Right? Like, oh, I just yelled at my kids. What do I do now to fix this? Oh, I just looked at that website and downloaded that stuff. What do I do now so that I can stop this? Oh, no, I was just prideful and prejudiced against those people. I called that ex-boyfriend who I know is no good for me. I cheated on that exam. Whatever it is, usually our default response is to ask the question, what do I do now? But that question is a justification by works question. It's a, what can I do to work my way out of this? It takes our focus and puts it on our sin and our attempts to try to work our way out of our sin. So the next time your bad behavior problem pops up, pause, and instead of asking, what do I do now? Ask a different question. Ask, what has been done for me? What has he, Jesus, done for me? Oh no, I yelled at my kids. What has been done for me? My heavenly father has spoken a kind word to me. And instead of railing against me, he gave his only son for me. Oh, I went to that website and I downloaded that stuff again. What has been done for me? My Savior has been faithful and pure and true to me, and his blood washes away all my sin, making me white as snow. 
oh, I was prideful and prejudiced against those people. What has been done for me? I was loved with an everlasting love, and the Heavenly Father relates to me just as I am in Christ Jesus. He doesn't see my color of skin or my hairstyle or the way I dress, but he loves me in Christ based only on my faith. Do you see what happens when you change your question? Your focus goes from looking at your sin and your attempts to try to work your way out of sin, and instead you get to put your focus on Jesus and all that Jesus has done to deliver you from your sin. You are not defeated by your bad works, and you're not putting your hope in your good works. Instead, all of your attentions and your plans and your strategies are fixed on Jesus and all of his good works for you. And that right there is called justification by faith. As we put our heart's affection and our mind's attention on Jesus' good works and his good death, we find that we're actually transformed to look more and more like Jesus. So we find that we are declared right by God only through faith in Jesus. And we're made more and more like Jesus only through faith in Jesus. The question is not, What do I do now? The question is, what has been done for me? And Jesus has done everything for you. Amen, church? Amen. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to take this truth and drive it down into our hearts. That it wouldn't just be letters or words on a page, but it would like get into us. It'd get into our hearts, get into our heads. Let's ask God that it would get into our schedules, our decision-making, our relationships, our jobs, our schools. Father God, that's our prayer right now, that what we've heard wouldn't just be concepts or ideas, wouldn't just be truths in a book, but it would be truths in our hearts. Psalm 51 verse 6 says, you desire truth in our innermost being. So Father God, would you get this truth of justification by faith deep in our innermost being? Drive it down in there. Root it in us, Father. We don't want to just take home a new car for your glory, God. Would you home changed by you? Would you do that for your glory, God? Would you do that in us? Father, right now, I want to pray for people in this room who are, they feel stuck in religion. They're stuck trying to measure up to you or build up their good works and see how high it can get and see if you'll ever be pleased and comparing themselves to others. Right now, Father, would you set them free? Would you deliver them from the tyranny, the slave rule of religion? And instead, would you open the eyes of their heart to see Jesus, the perfect one, to see Jesus who finished it all for us, obeyed it all for us, worked it all for us. This is a supernatural thing. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you right now to do a supernatural work. I pray there would be people born again this morning because you're opening eyes to see Jesus. I pray there would be religious people who get saved, that there'd be church people who meet Jesus even this morning, because you're opening eyes to see the glory of Jesus and all he's done for us. Would you do it, Father? Would you be praised in that way? 
Oh, Father, thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you that you gave your very own son, Jesus, to live the life we simply couldn't live and die the death that we really did deserve. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.